Hello and welcome back to another episode of Back Porch Stories with Chuck Stead. Today we have some special guests in the audience aside from the core group of Scotty, myself and Chuck. They've come back. That's right. The girls are back in town. It's <laughs> Muffin and Joan. Muffin and Joan are back. So uh, get ready for some Muffin and Joan hijinks because I'm sure uh, this is going to be another very difficult uh, uh, podcast to edit. <laughs> kind of difficult for me to say this right now. So... Without any further ado, how did Muffin get top billing on that? That's right, Joan. Is, the, the team you know, is. See, see, yeah. you see that? You're right. <laughs> Prove my point. I don't mind. That's my place. <laughs> <laughs> but if Powder were here, that'd be a whole different yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That's right. Or well, Peiko or Tiana or yeah, Royal. Any of the horses would be here. Then and there wouldn't be enough room in here for the rest of us. <laughs> and it would smell. So, without any further ado. Here's Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. This story is called Yuletide Ride. The Christmas season was usually anticipated by a vigorous cleaning of the house on Tessie's part, as well as her general concern about our lack of funds. Now, I never experienced a sense of poverty. It seemed that our family had all it needed. Heck, we had two vehicles, a horse, a television, a house with four rooms downstairs, three rooms upstairs. Then there was another bath upstairs. There was always food on the table. How could we have been poor? But every year, come the holidays, Tessie warned us all that we weren't to expect much this year. This, she would say, will be a very poor Christmas. Get used to it. And then, as if to assure that there'd be no discussion about this, Tessie shifted into her Yuletide holiday cleaning frenzy, in which she scrubbed down everything in sight. There was no talking to her once the cleaning got started. This year, I had fixed my sights on a set of trains. My groundwork included an endless monologue about railroading in America. Sketches of track configurations were left all over the house. And whenever an eerie freight train went up the Ramapo Valley, I ran to the dining room window to identify each car as it rolled past, calling out each car by name. On Christmas morning, I tore down the stairs to the living room and discovered two hefty boxes of train and track under the tree. It was a second-hand set of old Lionel's, solid, well-worn replicas of the American Railroad. Tessie was uncomfortable that they weren't brand new. She pointed out that even second-hand sets can be expensive. I couldn't have cared less. As far as I was concerned, these trains were better than new ones. Ever since my grandfather died, I had developed a love for things well-worn, used. They brought their own history when they were well-worn. So when Ricky came out for Christmas morning, we descended to the cellar with its cavern-like stone walls around us and assembled the trains on the plywood table that Walt set up for us. We worked away at our configuration of track, and we talked railroad talk. The train included a heavy black metal engine with a working whistle and a real smokestack. A little jar of smoke tablets came with it. Ricky wondered what would happen if you ate one of them. So when his brother Dougie came over, we dropped it into his cocoa. And just before he sipped it, Ricky was struck with a sense of holiday brotherhood, and he confessed. And Dougie was so taken with his honesty that he drank the cocoa anyway. We sat staring at him for a while. Nothing happened. Ricky suggested the smoke might be coming out the other end. So he turned around and we watched him again from the backside. Nothing happened. 
Round the track, the little train rumbled, whistling and smoking. The little Bethlehem people were riding in it. Mary in the engine cab, Joseph and the baby in the coal car, some shepherds and kings rolling along in the gondolas. Then suddenly it ran over a camel, (laughs) snapped its leg off. We took some Elmer's glue from Walt's workbench and plastered a white mess around the brake until the camel looked like a victim from a skiing accident. This set had a boxcar that pulled up to a loading platform where a little man ejected a metal can. It was a, a milk can. It was a milk can loading platform. But the man's spring was broken. He just made a nasty buzzing sound and looked out the door of the car nervously. So we ran upstairs and found Walt. He was smoking a new pipe, wearing new slippers, and staring at a new necktie. The tie had a large mouth bass jumping on it. The year before, he had received a silk tie with a great heron gliding across it. In fact, he had something of a wild collection of animals leaping about from tie to tie hanging in his closet, none of which he ever wore. Down the stairs, we followed his pipe-smoking trail to the workbench, where he managed to fix the milk car with an old clock spring, which was much stronger. Now, instead of unloading the milk cans, the man hurled the milk cans across the room. So we got pretty good at bouncing them off of Dougie. The train set itself had belonged to a kid named Ramey. Ramey was a sullen teenager who spent most of his time working on a 47 Chevy. It was a hot rod. Yes, he stripped the fenders, rebuilt the suspension. He spent a couple of years rebuilding the engine, which eventually led to a four-barrel dual exhaust system. He then mounted short scoop fenders on the front and half rounds on the rear. Altogether, this car evolved into a passionate rejection of everything else around him. On summer evenings, he strung a work light into the backyard to work on the body of the car. During the school year, he lugged a clutch plate, the blockhead, and the busted linkage into the shop class, where he worked for hours filing, fitting, and capping parts. As his muscle machine took shape in his folks' yard, his further alienation from the community seemed to be fixed in place. This is why he sold off the trains. My wayward cousin Buzzy, when he came to visit from the Ramapo hamlet, used to tell us kids that Ramey had been seen up at midnight races on Ghost Town Road in Sterlington. Rumor had it that Ramey sold everything he owned to pay for the car parts. Buzzy believed that one day Ramey would finish working on his hot rod, and then he would bust out of this stinking little town. He would no doubt earn a reputation from dragging on Ghost Town Road, and that would be his life. I knew nothing about this racing business, but I did know that Ghost Town Road was in the heart of the Sterling Iron Mine country. There were stories about when the iron mines were closed down, how the workers left a steam train behind somewhere, hidden. I fancied that if you followed the deserted tracks through the thick underbrush, you might find that train. Some trappers even claimed that at night, along those tracks, you could feel the vibration of a ghost train. So these lionels in some way connected to all of this. They were the last of Ramey's childhood. They were sold off. And one day, that boy-man would leave the village and race the ghost town road track. The Cramshaw brothers loaded up the rest of the nativity people into the Erie freight car to ship them off to the Ramapo hamlet in search of forgotten steam engines once visited by Heebie-Jeebie. Yes, my granddad had been there. But at the crossing, a 47 Chevy idled at full throttle, eager to burst out of town. The train waited for the Chevy. No, Ricky said. No, no, cars wait at the crossing, not trains. But this is Ramey's. 
He's, he's driving this car, Dougie countered, despite the fact that the little plastic auto in his hand bore no resemblance to Ramey's souped-up Chevy. It was one of those generic cars, looked something like a Dodge. A few hours later, the three of us stood at the 4th Street Railroad crossing in heated debate as to whether or not Ramey's Chevy could outrun a steam engine. Oh, no, 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 not a diesel. Well, it's a, it's a rocket train. No, no, trains don't got rockets in them. Do, too, do not, do, too, do not, do, too, and I seen it. Where? In a cartoon. It was deep into the afternoon. We had walked down to the crossing to watch some real trains, but there were none. There was no action in the freight yard. The village, too, was quiet. We had walked past houses warmly lit with families gathered round the dining table, watching television, kids playing near Christmas trees plugged in with bright-colored lights. The wind blew in through the pass, over the tracks, brought with it a cold scent of creosote. The train station was now boarded up. Mail delivery was now back in the village. But on Christmas, late in the day at the crossing, the gates were silent and the station uninviting. Ricky, exhausted by his little brother's constant rent of Ramey's Chevy, finally tossed a snowball into his face. Furiously, Dougie kicked scraps of ice and dirt at us. It was right then that their older brother came paddling along from suffering on his bicycle. He crossed the tracks and stopped in front of us. Dougie, tired of our company, hitched a ride home on the back of the bike. We, w- we watched them. They, they paddled up, back up 4th Street, and over the Thruway Bridge. Rick and I turned north and started along the track bed into the pass. Across the tracks, on an old spur that ran along the paint shop property, we came to a string of coal cars with an old flat iron car, all black as night, on the last of the string. The flat car stood before us on the track, buried in cinder. Its coupling was open like some giant metallic paw reaching out to us. With no one in sight, not even any traffic crossing overhead on the road trestle. We climbed up onto the flat car, and we laid on the splintered plank floor. We stared into the night sky over the railroad. This place, this moment, it was separate from my other life. Here there was no play, no family, not even Christmas. Here there was only the cold, empty freight cars, the direction of steel rails, the odor of cinder and rust. I felt like a hobo the kind that Uncle Mal would talk about. Far from my warm home, Rick and I were castaways, riding the rails. Always a new place, always a different town. And Christmas, always a sad memory. Huddled beneath a trestle in Chicago or Pittsburgh, in the company of other road bums with names like Jake, Toad, or Jaspers, or one sniveling little creature named Gizzard. Rick and I would share a can of beans for our holiday supper, and then join our hobo voices together in a discordant rendition of Silent Night. I'd have to get a trestle for my Lionels and place a few hobo figures beneath it around a little campfire. A few lonely souls singing on Christmas night. There's a man, Rick's voice rose up into the blackness overhead as tiny little snowflakes worked their way down to us. I I heard there's a man, says... These tracks go on forever. But I don't believe it. Why? Because, well, if they do, what do they do when they get to the ocean? And I thought about the cold, lonely place the ocean must be on Christmas Day. How the beachfronts 
which are so inviting in the summer, must be barren wastelands in the winter. And there might be some long-forgotten beach toy, frozen in the crusted sand, some little shovel that someone had cherished once, now frozen in the ground, alone. Suddenly everything moved. I rolled over, bumped into Ricky, and we both slammed into the steel plate at the end of the car. We sat up and watched the tracks pull away. The freight lumbered under the road trestle as some car lights cast overhead and passed by the power lines. To our right, we could see the throughway. To our left, we passed the quarantine ground plaque and a heap of cinder blocks piled for the canning factory to be built there. We rumbled through a trestle over the Ramapo River. The train picked up speed. Its wheels shrieked and screamed beneath us. We held on to each other, dumbfounded as to what we'd do. We did nothing. We just held ourselves together in the center of the car. We rode under the black bridge at the hamlet, and there by the old foundry we saw some teenagers. They were smoking cigarettes. We waved at them. They waved back, and then they were gone. And then a faint yellow light poured out of the old foundry window, and then it was all black again. We rode past the site of the old ironworks lake, now a drained bog home to muskrats and weasels, and on to Slotsburg, where it seemed we would continue into parts north, parts unknown, our lives forever cast to the wind. We would be the hobos we thought about. But as we pulled into Slotsburg, the train slowed down and came to a stop. We jumped off. It had been perhaps a mile, but for us, it had been forever. Walking back, we traded stories about our life on the railroad, if we had become hobos. We would have returned years later and found nothing to be the same. We came to a place in the cinder where an old spur had once gone up into the Ramapo Hills. The switch was gone, but the gradation in the bank clearly marked the place where tracks had trailed off into the rolling hills. Up there, the old ore trains had worked along Ghost Town Road. We stared up into the shadows of the west end of the past, up to the winding road, along the renegade loners, among the drag racers. Up there, a 47 Chevy would burn rubber, and Ramey would gain his place in history. We walked home, through the beginning of a light snow. It fell out of the night sky, soft and silent, and flakes melted on our cheeks. We wondered aloud if Ramey would one day return to the village, as we were doing, and find everything had changed. But when we got home, they all knew us. We sat down to supper with people who had never known we had been gone. And we knew. We knew. And we told no one about our Yuletide ride. You became a railroad man. For a very short time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. That must have been so much fun. Were you... Scared at all? Of course. Yeah. We were, we were frightened. And and oddly enough, disappointed when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell uh, our family. Ricky did tell his family, and he got a spanking oh. for telling. Um, at least that's what he told me. I don't know. I didn't see it happen. But So Ricky got in trouble. You didn't tell, so you were okay. Tessie and Walt never knew that you were on a flatbed that was rolling at least a mile down the track. Nope. What have you done if it just kept going? <laughs> we would have been hobos eating canned beans on Christmas Eve. <laughs> oh, man. The, the thing is, on that siding, which was adjacent to the paint shop property, old freight cars, old wooden ones sometimes would sit there for 
two or three years. They were just discarded train cars and whatever they do with them when they get old, sometimes they just put them there. And Walt and I had climbed up. My dad had climbed with me up on those cars many times. There were cabooses, and we went inside them and explored them together. So really, we'd been introduced to the idea of when they're on this track, you can get on them. Nobody said that, but Ricky was there when Walt showed us the interior of a caboose. So if we got in trouble, they'd have to think about why did you do that? And we would say, at least to Walt, well, you did it, you know, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would have been interesting, yeah. I would love to be inside an old caboose and oh, yeah. see it. Well, there's Absolutely. a you know the old style that has the bump on it, the little yeah. tower thing? There's a little step that goes up, like a little like half-round staircase thing that goes up, and there's a stool, and you sit in it, and you're watching the train. That's why you're there. You're, you're up there watching the train. It's a very cool little spot. He let me climb up and sit in it. And it was a cool oh. thing, yeah. I would love Either that. Either of you guys know this story that... He did this before today? No, no, because no, you kept it a secret. Yeah. You almost didn't need to, though. I mean, they were pretty casual. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they really didn't. Well, look what we were doing. It was Christmas Day, and the three little boys can walk down to the freight yard. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking when you were talking. That could never happen anymore. No. Especially when you were saying it was getting dark. Yeah. Parents would have been terrified. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, I rode my bicycle from Paramus, New Jersey to Norwood several times, which is, you know, a good 10-mile ride, you know, on a lot of main roads and everything. I couldn't have been more than 10 or 11 years old, something like that, maybe 12. And yeah. we could do all kinds of things. Down, go down to the, to the swamps by Route 17 and catch pollywogs. And there was never an issue of fear from our parents. They were like, you know, oh, where'd you go today? And they were very interested, but, you know, there was never any fear. But I wanted to ask one thing of Joan. Didn't you, you had trains first, right? Did you have yes. a train Yeah, there? you did. Yes. Yeah. Where are Until they now? Chucky showed up, I was the boy. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> so, you know, like we were saying, I didn't have a real identity until the horse, but. <laughs> yeah. But that's true. Then know, I got to be the girl with the horse. You really did have an identity with the horse. It was kind of regal. I remember driving up one time, but you were riding, like, very very elegantly and very, you know, on the road. And when you saw that it was us, you kind of, you know, gave it a little like yeah. that. And <laughs> to show off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. And like you said, with the going for 10 miles, who rides down 59 on a horse nowadays without yeah. getting killed? Yeah. That's right. So, well, I rode my bike to Slotesburg. The only way to ride a bike to Slotsburg was along 17 from the, the point. We, you'd ride up to the point off of old 59, and you'd get on 17, and that's the better part of half a mile before you get to Slotsburg. And it was just the shoulder you were riding in, but it, it was all scrappy, and, yeah, it was different. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. So the thing, how you started the story, the fact that your family didn't have money, you had all of these other things to do to keep your minds active and to be creative and inventive. And I worry that today, if it's not on a computer or a laptop or an iPad or something, it, uh, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And the only way you get these things is if you spend a tremendous amount of money to have these devices. So today I feel like kids are measured by this electronic world. 
And really the, the dimension of play has been reduced to what can I experience on this device. And I feel like every time we hear stories from previous generations, there was such a wide array of activities you can do. Physical and creative, imaginative, all of these different things. Even when I was growing up in the 70s and, and 80s, you know, you'd go into a yard and you'd decide, okay, we're going to do Batman and Robin. I'm Batman, you're Robin, and here's this, and then go. And there was just all of this uh, role-playing that was done, and you, know, you could pick up a couple of sticks and, and make something out of it. And you know, I just don't feel like that's a thing anymore. Well, in defense of the age of the Internet, the academics all talk about how the Internet has democratized the world, which I think is BS, but nonetheless they say this. And they say it because they've made it possible for all different kinds of demographics to have access to the Internet. So there could be that, technically, there could be that argument made. But then the issue comes in as to, yeah, but what is it on the Internet they're doing? And what is that, what's happening there? Is that taking the place of something else? I remember in the, in the daily stories that talk about Ricky Cramshaw and I making monster boxes, little dioramas. We spent hours on those things. And we didn't have a whole array of interesting stuff to work with. We had to invent it and make it up. We had one model and then we had to make up all the other junk that we stuck in the box and make a live scene of an event or something. And we talked about those things that we were making the whole time. And where were we getting that from? You know, maybe an old movie we saw or something, but that kind of interaction... I worked, you you know, we worked at the camp for three decades, you know. I, I, I don't see children having that platform. Instead, they have a platform on devices. That's just, it's a different way of thinking. Before you say good or bad, it's just a very different kind of interaction. Well, it's, it's rewired brains. You know, the people who use all these devices think differently. They're curious in a different way. And of course, you know, if somebody wants an answer, they just simply pick up their phone and quickly go right to Google, and uh, Muffin, you and I watched our children go through this conversion. And and I remember thinking, you know, I had fun going outside and doing those <laughs> things. It was really great. And then looking at my sons, Rich and Jim, who were playing, you know, Mario Brothers or something like that, and, you know, of course, they were much, much better at that than I was. So that was the end of me playing with them, doing those things, because who wants to be beaten by your children, you know, who are 10 Over years and old, over again. Whatever. But, like, what, what did that feel like to you? I mean, you must have seen, or were your kids very much into the digital? No, my kids are older than your kids. They're in their 50s now. So, oh, okay. So they were sort of free-range kids. And you right. didn't allow a lot of stuff in your house. We didn't have Even. any um, electronics when they were little. They were just free-range New yeah, York City kids. Yeah, it was the 70s. It was the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was pre- New York City in the 70s was a super dangerous yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think that's 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 what's really missing from today's kids is the danger. You know, you can't take any chances. Yeah. You, no, but you mean yeah. the ability to risk that danger, the ability well, to... Well, danger is fun. You yeah, know? yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. They, they, there were mishaps, but, you know, mistakes were made, but sure. they grew up. And we, they're, they're not afraid. We, we would and sometimes... still in one piece. Yeah. They're still alive and We would sometimes healthy. make rafts and float down the Ramapo all the way down into Suffren. Can you imagine encouraging a kid to do that today? They, they wouldn't be allowed. In fact, adults would see them doing it and tell them you can't do that, just generally speaking. 
Well, they, they walked to school, which was a mile. Yeah. Scott, you, you've been teaching for how many years now? 24. 24. So have you noted a change? There's a big change. And even this, this school year, which has become some sort of more normalized, we started without masks and we can hold hands and play circle games and things that we hadn't been able to do for a long time. And because I work in elementary school, three years is a very long time. Third graders were halfway through kindergarten when COVID happened. Mm. There's nobody left really in school that remembers how it was before COVID in my work space. Okay. So this year I started bringing back play parties, which were uh, groups of kids just like the, one of the stories you started with, Chuck, at the beginning of the podcast, where after dinner, everyone would come outside, all the kids, yep. and play. And you'd have not two or three kids, but you'd have 10 or 20 kids together, and you'd figure out things to do. So going back 200 years, there were these things called play parties, which were sort of games, sort of dancing kind of things with a song that everybody knew. And they could become very intricate. It's almost like a precursor to square dancing. And I would teach, I taught two of them uh, this year to third and fourth graders who not only had never heard of this 200-year-old experience, but really weren't used to working together for three years or so. The first one I did, I learned as a, a dance called Sitting at the Window. But I actually saw... A talk in uh, Nyack several years ago by some Lenape Indians, and they actually did the same exact dance, but they called it a snake dance. Mm-hmm. Follow the leader, you make a big circle, and then it becomes this concentric circle spiraling into the middle, and then the leader turns around and comes back. So you have to get to the middle of the circle going, say, clockwise before you go counterclockwise. It's really fun, and the kids could not figure out how to do it. I was the leader. When I would go back the other way, everybody would turn. Like, no, no, you have to follow the leader in front of you, not me. And so these little lessons were helping to formulate how do you do this as, you know, a group of, say, 18 or 20 kids. The next week or two, we would we did this other game called Alabama Gal. You have two lines of partners and there are four different sections to this fairly intricate game and dance. It would always take the whole period, and I would have to, as the teacher, just plow forward because it would seem impossible. The kids just did not understand where it was going. But after two or three teams got to do all of the parts, there was this critical mass where the entire class became a community in front of my eyes. I had maybe 10 classes that did this. And once it happened, I didn't even have to do it anymore. They were just going to the point where every team had a turn. Many classes said, let's do that again. The feeling of community and singing and moving together, it's just completely foreign to, I don't think it's just the kids that that I'm teaching. I think this is a, a cultural issue yeah and it does predate covid because if you go think back to the years we put in working at the camp the kids that were from the waldorf school got the non-competitive 
team games almost immediately. They hadn't been doing them before, but as soon as you laid it out, they could do them. And the kids that were, you know, your your suburbanite kids went through all these stages of trying to figure this out. And sometimes they get frustrated and sometimes they would just shout, why are we doing this? They were resistant because it wasn't their, their norm. Well, you remember, Muffin, the Kylies got together a lot. Yeah. And when we did, we had fun. The sack races and all these other things. Three-legged races. And the wheelbarrow thing. Oh, yeah. 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 And didn't we do one with the spoon and the 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 egg? egg. Yeah. It was was you and Maureen. We always won the three-legged races. Always, always. You guys, you had a simpatico, (laughs) the two of you. I think you still do. I'm not playing any games with you, with the two of you. (laughs) But I'll tell you one thing. I would love to be... I'd love to be in one of Scott's classes because yeah. he knows how to teach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, listen, this is a great one. Next week, we're doing something called Down at the Fountain Yard, and it's my single favorite story about my sister, Terry. Oh, good. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I just wanted to point out, when Chucky said we didn't have any money, he looked at me. <laughs> and then a few <laughs> minutes later, he mentioned we had a horse. <laughs> <laughs> there was a reason. I didn't miss it's always your fault. There yeah. was a reason for the lack of money. Yeah, the horse. My trains were secondhand. Your horse? Well, it was secondhand. You got your horse from somebody else. Mm. Yeah. What yeah, happened to true. your trains? I don't remember. I don't know. Do you, well, you know, you know but, where th- they were nice little trains. Do you know so. where mine are? Mm-mm. In those two boxes up on that shelf marked trains. Really? Ah. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Chuck, we've got to set them up again sometime. <laughs> yes. well, and that, yeah. little, that little jar of smoke tablets, it's in that box up there, right. the one that we poisoned Dougie with. <laughs> and you also mentioned about how we made things. Yes. Remember Dad had these big, tall scaffolding things with the wheels on them? Yep, yep. Before I had a horse, I used to put like a, a blanket or something on top so I could sit on it and the reins on the front and then push it, get it out on the road and ride it. Yeah, it was incredibly dangerous. Yeah. It, it fell over all the time with and you the, on it. And the other thing I did, poor little Terry got to be the horse. <laughs> I would put a rope around her like this and she would go trotting off, running off, being my horse and I would be... Pulling your, her your was, wagon, yeah, pulling the thing no, that you were on. No, I was just running behind her. Oh, you, oh. And, and steering her around. That, that, she got to I be the I think Monty horse. Python did that in a skit, I think. Oh, yeah. well, he co- copied it from me. <laughs> well, so what really happened here, I, I think, is Walt went into test at one point and said, we got to get that girl a horse before <laughs> she kills her sister. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Well, listen, this is fun. The girls are coming back for next week, so that's going to be great. Ladies and gentlemen, hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We'll see you next week. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event 
featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8th Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652, MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. You've been listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.